All right. Well, this morning I am up to the sixth week going through the New Testament book of Philippians, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi that he had started. And now he's writing from a Roman prison to this church that he loves. He has a lot of affection he shares for them in the first chapter. Um, but he's in prison and he longs to see them again, but he's not sure if he's ever going to get out again. And we're going to be in uh, verses 27 to 30 this morning, but I'm going to start reading from verse 20 just to set the context Last week, we looked at verses 20 to 26, where he's wrestling with this whole dilemma of, of whether, to, whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die and what that's going to mean for him. And so I'm going to read, starting again in verse 20, and then we'll, that'll lead into verse 27 to 30, which we'll look at this morning. Here we go. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now... As always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. And now begins the new section we're going to look at today. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, quiet our hearts and quiet our minds. Help us to hear your word through this word, to understand what it means, and to know how to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, setting the context here, Paul is in prison. He's been unjustly imprisoned, persecuted, um, accused of starting an insurrection, and so they've put him in prison, basically. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die, if he's ever going to get out again. He longs to see the Philippian church again that he loves so much, but he doesn't know if he's going to make it. And so in verse 27, he says, listen, whatever happens, whether I make it out and come back to you or whether I die, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That seems to be what sums up the message he's trying to communicate to him here. I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. Whatever happens, whether I come to you again or whether I am not able to come to you, please conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's this morning what I want to try to understand what I've been wrestling with this week. What does that mean? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've got to start by explaining, well, what is the gospel then? If we're going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, what is the gospel of Christ? best place to go to start to try to understand that is where Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which means they died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. And the gospel is the Greek word euangelion, where we get the word evangel- evangelistic, evan- you know, evangelical. Euangelion, which means the good news. The good news, the gospel. Let me remind you of the gospel, he says. And he boils it down in a nutshell to this. Christ died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And then he lists all the people that he appeared to after his resurrection. So that, in a nutshell, he says, is the good news. It starts with bad news. The bad news being that a holy God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created us to enjoy a relationship with him, that perfect fellowship, but we've rebelled against him. We've sinned. We've fallen short of his holy standard. We are all now in a place where we're separated from a holy God, and none of us on our own good works can ever make ourselves right with God again. No amount of going to church and giving to the poor and trying to be a good person can ever make you right again with a holy God because we've all sinned and fallen short. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God did not leave us alone in our sin, but that Jesus came, the eternal Son of God, and that he lived perfectly the life we couldn't live, and he died on the cross, a sacrificial death in our place, rose again from the dead to conquer sin and death to make a way for us to be right again with God. Or as Paul put it in Romans 3, 21 to 24, but now a righteousness from God, and that word righteousness means be a way to be rightly related to God. A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. There's a lot of very important theological words in there. But the nutshell, right? He's saying there's a way to be right with God that doesn't depend on the law, doesn't depend on good works, doesn't depend on what you've done or haven't done. There's a way to be right with God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is ever going to be right with God by trying to be a good person. No one can measure up to a holy God. But he says there's a way to be right with God that doesn't depend upon that. And that's good news for all of us who've fallen short of God. And that way, he says, comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That by his death and resurrection, all who put their trust in him, he says, will be justified, which is a a legal term, means declared not guilty. That even though you've sinned and fallen short, you're declared not guilty before a holy God. And it's by grace, he says, it's by his grace, a free gift, an undeserved gift from God to you. That is the salvation we're talking about, a free gift 
of grace from God to you, to all who would put their trust in Jesus and not trust in their own righteousness, their own good works. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Not just in your head, but I hope it makes sense to your heart. If you've never heard this before, this is the gospel. This is the good news that he's talking about here. There's a way to know God, be right with him, that doesn't depend on how good a person you are, what you have done or haven't done. It depends on putting your faith in Jesus. That he justifies you and makes you right with God. He forgives your sins, past, present, and future. He gives you a new heart and a new spirit, putting his Holy Spirit in you. He adopts you as a child of God so you can relate to God as your loving father. That's the gospel. This is the story to which all the stories point. This is it. Every love story points to this. This is the love story to which all the other stories point about the one who knows you, everything about you, but does not reject you, but instead gives his life for you to transform you and make you a better person. This gospel, this, this is the rescue operation to which all the stories of all the rescues point in which you are saved from the evil one who has captured and enslaved you. You're saved by an act of sacrificial heroism. The one who saves the day and rescues you. This gospel is the story of supernatural power, the story to which all these stories out there of supernatural power point to, that the power of God can indwell you by his Holy Spirit, changing you from an ordinary person to one who has the very presence and power of God inside of you to overcome anything. This is the story to which all the stories point, the story of good triumphing over evil, victory snatched out of the jaws of defeat, Love that is eternal. Death that is not the end. Happily ever after. This is it. This is the good news. This is the gospel. All those fairy tales, all those movies you go to and books that you read and the ones that you just wish were true. But you know they're not because they're fiction. They all point to this. This is the true story. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the love story. The rescue operation. All of it. In one. It's what Jesus has done. And when this story becomes your story, that is when you find salvation. When it's not just, here's what Jesus did, but here's what Jesus did for me. Not just Jesus died on the cross for sinners, he died on the cross for me because I am a sinner. Not just God forgives, but God forgives me. Not just God is Father, but God is my Father. Has this story become your story? Has the gospel become good news for you? That's salvation, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Again, the gospel means it's good news. It's very important that you recognize it's good news. News is about something that's happened. It's not good advice about something you need to do. It's good news that Jesus died for you, and all you need to do is receive it, believe it, Put your trust in him. Turn from your own sin and self-centered ways to put your trust in him. That's the gospel. As I was reflecting on what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, there's a movie that came to mind. It was 
a movie called uh, Saving Private Ryan came out a number of years ago. And there's a scene near the end, if you haven't seen it, well, it's been, you know, 20 years or so, so too bad, uh, where, you know, Tom Hanks' character, he has led this rescue operation to rescue Matt Damon's character, um, and he, he rescues him, and, and then Tom Hanks' character is dying. And what does he say to him? Anyone remember what he says to him at the end there? Yes, right? He says, earn this. Earn it. He didn't have to earn the rescue. He, he was rescued. You know, Matt Damon's character was rescued. Nothing he did to deserve it. He just was saved by him. But now, he says, live a life worthy of the rescue that has happened. Live a life worthy of this deliverance, this salvation. With the rest of your life, live a life worthy of this. Came to mind as I consider, again, what, what he's calling us to. Or what he says, live a life worthy of the gospel. You don't have to earn salvation. He has done it for you. Jesus has saved you. He's the one who gave his life for you. Now that you've been saved, live a life worthy of the gospel. I mean, clearly, I think Paul's concern first and foremost is that their conduct would match what they believe, right? Live a life worthy of the gospel. May your actions line up with your words. May your life reflect what you believe. There's nothing worse than a Christian hypocrite, right? How many people have abandoned God and given up on the faith because of Christian hypocrites who claim to believe one thing and then their lives completely contradict what they say they believe? Nothing worse than a Christian who claims to love, you know, and follow a God of love and then acts in hate towards others. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Live a life worthy of the gospel. May your actions, may your life reflect your words and what you believe. And in the same way, he also says, whether I am there or not, whether I return to you or not, he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. I like that as well. Not just may your words and your actions line up, but also whether I'm here or not, may your life be one of integrity. May you be the same person if I come back to you as you would be if I didn't come back to you. May you be the same person at church as you are at home by yourself. May you be the same person around others as you are when you're with your family, when you're at work, when you're among your Christian family. May you live a life of integrity. So whether I come and see you or whether I don't make it, may you live a life worthy of the gospel. It's worth reflecting on that one. You know, whether you are that kind of person of integrity who is the same around others at church as you are when you're at home by yourself. So there's two things in particular I want to focus on when, when it talks about living a life worthy of the gospel. The first is this. I think in this passage, verses 27 to 30, there's two things in particular that he focuses on about what he means when he talks about living a life worthy of the gospel. And the first is this. He wants them to strive for unity with sacrificial and selfless love. He's pleading with this church to strive for unity with sacrificial and selfless love. Again, he says, 
Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving as one for the faith of the gospel. So right away, he's saying, this is what I want. That I want to know that you guys are standing firm in one spirit, striving as one for the faith of the gospel. That you're united, united in your sacrificial and selfless love for each other. United in the gospel. Going on, he says in verse 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. I want to see that you are united. Live a life worthy of the gospel. May your life be consistent with the message that you're proclaiming. And I want to know that you are united, standing firm in one spirit. I'm going to move ahead just briefly. We're going to look in a deeper way at at chapter 2 next week. But right after this passage comes this, where he goes a little bit more in detail about what he means by this. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Are you hearing more of that theme here? Strive for unity with selfless and sacrificial love. I mean, all the ifs in, the, in that first couple of verses, what's he saying? He's saying, listen, if you believe the gospel, if this means anything to you, if you know Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit, then please make my joy complete by being like-minded. Being one in spirit and purpose. Considering others more important than yourselves. Humbling yourself. Looking to the interests of others. Strive for unity with sacrificial and selfless love. Paul is deeply concerned that this church would be united. I share that concern. I hope you share that concern, that we would be deeply united in sacrificial and selfless love. There's a way in which maybe it wasn't the same, probably was the same in his world, but certainly today there's a way in which the world is very much trying to divide people that is anti-gospel, I would say, where the gospel calls us to unity. Certainly maybe if you've been paying attention to our culture, there's a There's an obsession with dividing people into categories. Let's divide people into male and female, cisgender and transgender, heterosexual, homosexual, white, and black indigenous people of color. There's there's this obsession in our world of categorizing and lumping people into different groups, some as the oppressed and some as the oppressors. The gospel just cuts across that and says, in here, we are all first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. We all belong to him. We're all children of the heavenly father. All the things that might divide out in the world, all the barriers out there are to come down in the kingdom of God. He pleads with them to be united, to be one in spirit and in purpose, in every way to be like-minded, to Elevate others above yourselves to look to the interests of others. Because if that's the way 
the churches, everyone looking to the interests of others and elevating others above themselves, then we don't need to divide over anything else because we're already trying to elevate others, to humble ourselves, not to put ourselves above others. Paul tells them, strive for unity with sacrificial love. Remember who Jesus was, that Jesus was in very nature God. And what did he do with that status? It says he laid it down to come down and to become one of us all the way to death on a cross for us. That's the kind of humility that our God and Savior showed. He says, if that's the way that Jesus was, then who are we? Who are we to put ourselves above him? If he was willing to humble himself with sacrificial and selfless love, then who are we to elevate ourselves above him and say, well, I'm not going to do that for others. They don't deserve it. When he says, you were a sinner and Christ died for you, how can you say, well, they're a sinner and I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to lay myself down for them. Jesus put it this way in a parable in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Let me read this. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter thought he was being generous there. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In other words, just stop counting. Just forgive. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's like billions of dollars. A man who owed a billion dollars was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now again, Jesus' audience listening to this knows it's ridiculous. This man owes a billion dollars. He's not going to be able to pay it back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he paid back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. How's that? Jesus says, this is, this is what you're like when you refuse to forgive your brother or your sister. When you refuse to forgive, he says, you're like a servant who's forgotten that they're a servant and is acting like they're the king. But you've forgotten that you have been forgiven a debt of a billion dollars by the heavenly father, by the king. So how can you then turn around and not have mercy on your fellow brother or sister, your fellow servant? Paul, again, is exhorting them, strive for unity with selfless and sacrificial love. Do not let these things divide you. Do not let there be bitterness and unforgiveness. Remember Jesus. Remember the debt that you have been forgiven. 
remember that you don't deserve any of that. Remember that when you were a sinner, Christ gave his life for you. So if someone has sinned against you, how can you then hold it against them and not lay down your life for them as well? Once again, Philippians 1, 27 to 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. See how it ends that verse by saying, one of the reasons it's so important to be united is because there is actual opposition from the outside, he's saying. There are people who are not on your side. There are people who think that you are wrong and that you are evil. There are people who are anti-God or anti-gospel, anti-Jesus, anti-church. There is actual opposition out there. And if you are not united, if you're fighting yourselves, how do you stand a chance against those who actually are enemies of the gospel? How can a military unit fight their enemy when they're fighting each other? How can a team win against the opposing team where they can't get along themselves? And how can a church family advance the kingdom of God when it can't even love each other, can't even forgive each other, can't even work through its own issues? Unity is hard. Unity is hard. Forgiveness is hard. Grace and mercy is hard. We all have self-interest. We all have pride. We all have been wounded, and it can be very hard. James 4, 1 through 3, James sums it up this way. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He recognizes we've got self-interest, all of us. We've got selfish motives. We all want things. And when what we want conflicts with what someone else wants, we fight, we quarrel. And when we pray, sometimes we pray with wrong motives because we're asking for things that are not in his interest, his best interest, but in our best interest. Strive for unity. That is what Paul is saying to them. First and foremost, he says, I don't know if I'm going to see you again. I don't know if I'm going to be there. So please live a life worthy of the gospel by striving for unity because there is actual opposition out there. And unless you're united, you're going to fall apart. Second thing he focuses on in 27 to 30 is this. Prioritize God's honor over personal reputation and comfort. This has been a theme throughout chapter one for Paul. He has been saying over and over, listen, I'm in prison. There's people slandering my name out there, but you know what? As long as Christ is preaching, the gospel is going forth, I'm okay with it. If I gotta be in prison for this to happen, for me to reach the prison guard and reach Rome from the inside out, for people to be encouraged and strengthened, then okay, I'll be in prison. If people are slandering my name, but Christ is being preached, I'm okay with that. And here he is encouraging them the same thing. Prioritize God's honor, God's name over your own name, over your own reputation and comfort. Again, he tells them to strive as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Don't worry. Don't be scared. 
There are people who are opposing you, I know, but strive and stay faithful. And then he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You're going to suffer, he says. There's going to be opposition. It's going to be hard. And you're going to be tempted to jettison Jesus, right? To give up the faith and just prioritize your own comfort, your own security. Don't do it, he says. Put him first. Put his gospel first. Put his kingdom first. Put him first. Just like Jesus laid down his own reputation, his own comfort, his own security for you. At the end, Paul says, you're going through the same struggle you saw I had. That references, I think, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul was in Philippi, this is part of what happened to him. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, not just flogged, but severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Again, Paul is not speaking from, like, hypotheticals here. You read this. This is what happened to him when he was in Philippi. He says, please, stay united, keep faithful, put the honor and reputation of Jesus above your own because there is opposition out there and there are going to be people who are going to come against you, who don't like you, who don't want Jesus to be glorified or any of this stuff. They're going to attack you. They're going to say things about you. They're going to do things to you. Stay faithful. Prioritize God's honor above your own personal reputation and comfort. Jesus told us, this is what's going to happen if you follow me. John 15, 18 to 21, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a people pleaser. And when it comes to talking about Jesus or the faith, you know, my temptation is I want to make sure that nobody, you know, I smooth off the rough edges, right? Make sure that it's palatable to everyone. Make sure that it, everyone thinks I'm a nice guy at the end of the day. Make sure everyone thinks, you know, that, that, that this is, you know, everyone's included and everyone's loved and all of this, Right? That's the temptation I have to fight against because the gospel, as I outlined earlier, is not all puppy dogs and rainbows, right? It's not that way. You have Jesus declaring that our eternal destiny depends upon how we respond to him, 
that all who put their faith in him are saved from eternal separation from God, but that those who reject him are eternally condemned. There's a lot of rough edges in that statement. There's a lot of offense for Jesus to claim that he is the only way, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. There's a lot of offense in that. And those of us who are people pleasers wish maybe he had said something like, you know, all paths lead to God. But he didn't say that. He said, we are all sinners separated from a holy God and all of our good works and all of our efforts and all of our religiosity will never save us. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian, a Jew, a Buddhist, a Muslim, an atheist, whatever it is, nothing. No amount of good works, no amount of religiosity will save you. But there's a way to be right with God that does not depend upon the law, doesn't depend upon what we've done or haven't done. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That was what Romans 3, 21 and 24 said. There's a lot of rough edges in that. There's a lot of offense in that. And if I or you believe and proclaim a message like that, you are going to offend people. There are going to be people who think you are rude, insensitive, intolerant. If you believe that there is a God who created people, if you believe there is a right and a wrong, a good and an evil, and that we don't get to choose for ourselves what is good and evil, right and wrong, but that there's a God who created it and he determines what is right and wrong, again, you're going to offend. There are going to be people who don't like you, who think you're intolerant and rude and mean. And it doesn't mean we go out there trying to be intolerant, rude, and mean, but it means if we are faithful to the gospel, if we proclaim Jesus, then people will hate you. There will be people who don't like you. As Jesus said, if you are faithful to me, if you follow me, no servant is greater than his master. They hated me, they're going to hate you too because they don't know the God who sent me. There's going to be opposition. If the world loves you, Jesus said, then it means you belong to the world. If everyone loves you, it means you belong to the world. If you don't belong to the world, there's going to be people who don't like you. So if you are faithful, you will experience opposition. But he says in this part in yellow here, this is, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Their opposition to you when you are faithful to God, is a sign to them. It's a, it's a warning to them that they will be destroyed because they are not just opposing you, they're opposing the God who sent you. The message that you proclaim is not your own message, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's a sign that they will be destroyed if they're opposing that message, but that you'll be saved because you have been faithful when it was hard. You prioritize the reputation and name of Jesus Christ over your own reputation and comfort, which is a sign that you belong to him. Because if you didn't belong to him, you would choose your own comfort every day of the week. You would say, well, I don't want people thinking bad of me, so I'm just going to forget about Jesus here and downplay him, and I'm going to go along with what the world tells me to believe. It's a sign that they, are, they will be destroyed, but that you'll be saved. As it says in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
He's saying the same thing here, that when you go through trials, it tests the quality of your faith. When you go through trials and opposition, it tests whether or not your faith is genuine. Because if your faith is genuine, then you will continue to prioritize the name and honor of Jesus, even when it means that people hate you, even if it means that you are going to suffer as a result. But if the opposition comes and you kind of just toss Jesus aside to protect your own reputation, what does that say about your faith? Is it truly in Jesus or is it just about your own comfort? Let me sum this all up. Paul exhorts the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live their lives in a manner that is consistent with the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins and gave his life for them. Whether he's there or not, live a life in integrity, he says. Be the same person whether I come or don't come. Strive for unity and selfless and sacrificial love because there is opposition out there. And if you are crumbling on the inside, it's just going to be destroyed. It's going to fall apart. So in every way, remember the one who gave his life for you. Remember the one who forgave you. And strive for unity to love your brother and sister. Forgive them. Show grace and mercy towards each other. And prioritize God's honor, God's name, Jesus Christ's name, above your own personal reputation and comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would please help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live this out, to be men and women of integrity who, not trying to earn our salvations, but who live our lives in a manner worthy of the sacrifice that you made for us. Jesus, you gave your life for us. Help us to give our lives to you in response, to lay down and surrender everything for your glory. You loved us all the way to death. Transform our hearts, captivate our hearts by that love that we might love you in return and love our neighbor in a way that points them to you, in a way that reflects your love for us. We can't do this on our own, Lord. We confess our weakness to you. We confess that we have so much self-centeredness, so much selfish interest, that we have pride that gets wounded. Help us to lay all that down, Lord. To prioritize you and then to prioritize others above ourselves, Lord. That you might be glorified in our lives and in our church and through us in this world, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.